You're listening to this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters, a podcast about the personalities and events in the New South Wales Parliament here in Sydney with Alistair Hinskins. Well, my guest this week on Macquarie Street Matters is my good friend Damien Tudorhope. I'm not sure that this government has the focus on small business. And I just say this, what there are two or two or three things which really stand out in this in this budget. There was an increase in payroll tax revenue of about $4 billion. Where was there one word potentially of increasing the threshold for payment of payroll tax? Not a word. Well, in fact, they promised no new taxes. Well, but... Yet, yet but we've got the new could... tax on new homes, we've got that, we've yep. got a whole range of new taxes, new tolls on the Harbour Bridge. Yep. But not only, not only that, there was a surplus in terms of the forward estimates for transfer duty on homes. We introduced, uh, and, and that surplus is about $9 billion of additional revenue from stamp duty on people selling their homes. Where was the... Uh, uh, the this was a massive opportunity lost uh, to have the vision to say we need a new tax system in relation to how we tax people who are selling their homes. Like one of well, the you dis- could have taken our tax reform even further you rather could, than repeal it. You could have, and that, that's the point I was going to make, is, is that we started down this journey uh, of stamp duty reform and in many respects it was an invitation to fu- future governments to be reformist in relation to that. If we'd known that there was going to be $9 billion in additional transfer duty, you could have offered more incentives, say, to older people to want to downsize, to say, you too can, uh, in fact, elect not to pay the lump sum stamp duty. Like, you know, I sold my family home, which is reasonably substantial, and I have to transfer down. One of the disincentives of transferring out of a big home, which could be used for another, another family, to a smaller home, was the amount of stamp duty I had to pay to actually sell and buy again. Look, and it's I, a, a, a I, massive disincentive. I've had a number of constituents say that to me, that they want to leave their large home, provided for a, for a young family, yet the tax system is penalising them for doing that and downsizing, just as you, you've explained. And when Mark Speakman made that point after the budget was delivered, there was sort of a derision from from the Labor government, which I didn't understand because it is an obvious shortfall in our system at the moment that there is a disincentive for excess capacity in the housing market to be made available for more people. Well, one one of the things, or statistics that someone related to me recently was that on any one night in Sydney, there are 80,000 empty bedrooms. Mm. Now... Yeah, where they are, I don't know what it is. But that that, that was one of the... But uh, so many people, you know, single people or couples, are living in a home with three or four bedrooms. Correct. And... They would potentially like to downsize. They, yes. They are. T- uh, and it, it frees up potential space for people with families and whatever to occupy those spaces and to continue, I suppose, the turnover of stock through the market. And, and many people, when they're older, they don't want to look after their gardens and so on. Correct. That they, they do want to get into a smaller place. Yep. So, you know, there, there were lots of opportunities for a government to be ref- continue to be reformist. As I we think were. we were a reformist government. Mm. I think under the previous Premier, he was continually thinking, oh, where, where are the opportunities for creating reform, getting rid of regulation, 
giving people an opportunity of you know starting their own starting their own businesses, continuing their own business. One of the real failings of this budget was the reduction in fundings for startups, removal of the startup hub. I now, know. Look, as uh, science, innovation, technology minister, I know what you're saying. I think you know th- this is people don't necessarily get what we're talking about in terms of innovation hubs and money for, for, for technology and the like. But the reality is that the global economy is changing so much and there is so much interruption going on into the jobs of the future. And that's not something that you can just catch up with very easily. You've actually got to be riding the wave as it's happening. And we had invested a huge amount of money, provided premises, money, resources, technology to support that, but that's now all well, we um, being cut. We want innovation to stay here um, because you will find... If, in, if other <coughs> jurisdictions are offering better, better incentives for my innovation, uh, you know, whether it's by way of taxation or uh, opportunities <coughs> to, for you know, borrowing or the like... That's where they'll go, uh, and that is lost to Australia and lost to New South Wales. And I think one of the things that we were very focused on in government was how do we encourage innovation? We've got a new airport starting in Western Sydney. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, new airport starting in Western Sydney. We could have made that a big focus for opportunity for innovation. But one of the really disappointing things that when you were talking about regional New South Wales is there were... Uh, there was a significant planning afoot in respect of the tunnelling through the Blue Mountains to be able to open up Western New South Wales and to make it uh, the opportunity of the connection between Western New South Wales and the, the coastal New South Wales much more accessible. Now, that required vision, and yet that's a project which has been cut. It is, you know, in my view, very narrow, very narrow focus that those sort of projects which were in fact visionary in terms of what they could deliver for the state potentially being abandoned and the treasurer is single-minded that is that his focus is on public sector wages now you and i would not disagree that we should be paying nurses and police officers and teachers a fair wage whatever but you've got to do it in circumstances where like in your own home that you can afford it as it goes along one of the things that the Reserve Bank Governor consistently would say, you cannot have wage rises which are not inflationary unless there are productivity outcomes. And one thing I would say in respect of the current government is, is that we have received or they've delivered pay rises for public sector, the public sector, but have not identified one productivity benefit which they can deliver for the people of New South Wales. And that is a massive failing. Well, there are problems with regard to the, the, the wage allowance within the budget on, on many different levels. So the first is the one that you've just identified, which is that the teachers have been able to get a 10% increase this year. I think it's 8% next year in their wages without demonstrating any productivity changes no, it, or, or improvements. It, the, the wages are... They've, it is 10% for the teachers on the lowest threshold and 8% for the people on teachers on the fresh threshold. There is no, nothing in the future years. The government wanted right. to impose a 2.5% cap for the future years. The Treasurer was rolled in relation to that, so there is no provision for what the wage increases will be in the future, and that's the big danger in this budget. 
Well, 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 I was going to, well, I was going to go to that because it's not just a danger with regard to the teachers, though. the The reality is that they've got those substantial increases without demonstrating any productivity improvements. That then is a message to the yeah. other public well, sector workers. The I'm other public sector workers that they. I mean, they got four and a half percent. The other public sector negotiated wages of four and a half percent increases, and potentially that was an achievable result within potentially some budgetary constrictions. But when the teachers, who chose the weakest link in amongst the government ministers, and then were able to sort of wedge that government minister into delivering a ten point eight percent increase and wedged the treasurer into the. Can you imagine a police officer, a, a corrections officer, an ambulance worker, uh, a nurse... Paramedics. You know, uh, ...seeing that and saying, well, why can't I get a 10% increase? Mm. So the, the, so if... But if the budget doesn't allow... Well, they've created a $3.8 billion fund uh, for wage increases in the future. And I'll, I'll make this prediction now. That $3.8 billion fund which is supposed to last for it to provide for wage increases over four years, will be eaten up in the first year. Well, that, that's what I was concerned about, that it will be eaten up. But, but the other thing too is that with, with your wage component of your budget, which is going to be about half of the budget, with that being incredibly volatile and unpredictable, it was very predictable under the wages cap. Correct. And for the first 10 years of the coalition government, public sector wages increased more than inflation Correct. and higher than the private sector. Correct. So it, and was, when, and when, and when it was mutually beneficial because it gave the government predictability and it actually gave a good outcome for and, public, and, public servants. And, the, and the, the government and the union movement will say that the wage rises they have, been, that they have received are the biggest wage rises in a decade. Well, in percentage terms, that is right, but in real terms, it is a, a falsity. Because if you're receiving a 2.5% increase in wages at a time when inflation rate was zero, your real wage increase then was, in fact, in many respects, much greater than it is today when a 4.5% increase in circumstances where the inflation rate mm. is 7%, mm. you, in fact, have gone backwards in mm. terms of your real wages. So we were delivering real wage increases to the public sector all through that 10-year period. Already, although the current government boasts about in, uh, massive increases in wages, in terms of real wage increases, they were much better off under us than they were under the uh, current Under Labor. And, and then the other thing that I would note with regard to this uncertainty around wage expenditure is that, you know, my sense is that infrastructure has not been provided for in nearly the same way as it was under the coalition. I'll, I'll say, you know, a couple of things about that. That when we were in government, it seemed as if infrastructure was... expenditure was increasing by almost $10 billion a budget year on year. And we don't seem to have that increase. And in fact... Chris Minns in the lead-up to the election actually announced cutting certain infrastructure projects. So, so the, the mentality seems to be that there's a priority on public sector wage increases over infrastructure. 
I, th I think that's uh, pretty self-evident. In fact, I, I think the problem that the government has is that some of the infrastructure projects which they are funding and which are our projects, they no longer can afford to do and they are looking for opportunities of either reducing the scope of those projects or alternatively extending the time frame of those projects. And one of the, you will recall that, that the Premier floated the idea of not doing uh, the Western Metro and it got an enormous backlash from Western Sydney and consequently he's moved back. But I'll make this prediction that he will extend the period of that, potentially announce some different stations with a view to sort of making a noise about I have reformatted the project. But it'll really, it's really a story or a narrative that he's developing uh, to explain the fact that he wants to extend the delivery date of that project so that they can potentially afford it. And now they've announced a couple of new schools in this project, but a lot of the infrastructure spending contained in this budget is infrastructure spending, which we had already announced, which we had already committed to, and which they are continuing in terms of there's no vision for new infrastructure except for potentially, I think there's a, a hospital at Fairfield, which is a hospital which is being built, let me tell you, out of West Invest money. So for all, for all the, the, the crying that they did about asset recycling, they don't mind using the benefit of uh, asset recycling for delivery of their programs, and, but then at the same time bleed about it. But the Fairfield Hospital, which is, I sort of call it the Frank Carboni Hospital, because this was what he wanted for the purposes mm. of not contesting that seat, so you got that hospital. There's another one, potentially Rouse Hill. There's a couple of new schools that they've identified. But even the new schools were often schools in the planning process by us, which we are now moving to the next stage of that planning. So not a lot of vision in terms of infrastructure and, in fact, more cancellations than opportunities to provide additional infrastructure. We've already talked about some of the false statements that were made in the lead-up to the election by Labor. Uh, they said they wouldn't increase taxes. That, that was incorrect. Uh, they said that public sector wage increases were fully funded. That was incorrect. Absolutely. And funded, I think, out of productivity was the correct. promise. That was incorrect. They also made a promise that they wouldn't privatise anything. Now, it seems to me that Rose Jackson almost immediately said, well, we'll be... Um, selling off public land to property developers to help uh, increase the supply of housing, that to me sounds like privatisation. There, there, there seems to be um, um, uh, an impossibility about operating government without ever disposing a public asset. Yeah, well, they, they seek to redefine what privatisation is. Privatisation is only something we do. It's not never something they do. So, in fact, selling off surplus land... They well, they, they sold electricity generators. Yeah, well, that was privatisation. They sold it to the private sector. Correct, they, yeah. Then they pretend that it was all our privatisation which has increased the, uh, electricity prices when, in fact, it's the generation component which they sold off, which has contributed the most. Correct. Uh, so, you know, we're, when they're in power, it's never privatisation. When we are, it is privatisation. Like, there are other things uh, potentially that, that, that are, are, will impact the budget. Like, one of the things in respect of power supply is this a rowing issue. Um, I'm sure you were going to come to that, but uh, they have committed to keeping a rowing open. Now... I don't know about you, but when I was in, in practice, 
you'd never actually commit to enter or give someone a blank cheque for what they could charge you because you'd made a commitment to actually want their service before you negotiated the price. Now, this is a government which makes an announcement we want to keep a rowing open without having negotiated in advance what it was going to cost the it, taxpayer. It's, now, it's basic commercial... Principle is that you sort of go... You come when you're you reluctant. Make, you reluctantly when you, make you reluctantly an, make a payment for a rowing. You don't announce that as your outcome, and, and then, then so pay whatever you have to do to achieve it. To achieve it, and in fact, it was an extraordinary thing uh, mm. that the energy minister comes out and says, "We have seen um, a Keefe report, I think it was called, and there is imminent problem in return in, in ensuring the continuation of power supply, and we will be, we will be keeping a rowing open." Well, if you're faced with a report which identifies a danger, you keep that report to yourself, or potentially under apps, you go and negotiate your outcome, and then you go and tell the people, we have negotiated this really good deal to keep the arraring open. Well, the naivety of this government is is they announce they'll keep it open and then say, well, now we'll do the negotiation. Do you, do you think that's a consequence of most of the members of this Labor government never having worked in the private sector? I think it's possibly that, but I think it was also uh, a government which indicates that it's more concentrated on a media release than an outcome. Mm. Uh, and one of the things I say about that is, if you look at this budget, um, one of the things we were very focused on uh, as a government when we were in, uh, in government was what we called outcomes. This government has abolished the outcome statement. You could go to our budget and look at every single agency and the agency would identify what the outcomes that they wanted to achieve, whether it was in... This was our last outcome statement. It's a, it's a, it's a hefty tome well, it's as part it. of the budget. And, and what it does is it's a, this is the outcome and this is the funding to achieve that outcome. Now, when you don't have an outcomes requirement of your public sector and your agencies, effectively... All you do is work on baseline funding, which is generally then the agencies then say, well, we want you know, 8% more than last year or whatever, because we don't ask them to say, what outcomes are you going to achieve? What funding do you need to achieve that outcome? Now, Is it possible to have integrity in government when you don't have that degree of transparency? Because then you can just fudge it all, can't you? And that's the point. That's the point of what I think the way this budget has been framed. It is about fudging the numbers to suit the narrative at any particular time. And not time. telling the public what they're actually doing. Absolutely. And uh, I, I think that we have a public a public service which I think is really quite outstanding. When all my dealings with the public service were, uh, you know, very frank. And I just, I just wonder how is it that we've got to a, a stage where the new government is being able to say that we don't require of our public service agencies outcomes to justify the funding that we are spending in relation to that agency. Now, It'd be nice to think that the crossbench might support a reintroduction of that degree of transparency. Well, if I had my way, I, we, we currently have what's called the Fiscal Responsibility Act. And the Fiscal Responsibility Act says this, that you, that you should... Primarily, a treasurer is required to retain the AAA credit rating for the state, and already this government has indicated that we may lose our AAA credit rating. Now, that's that that should be unheard of because it means that you know potentially the interest we've got to pay 
on our debt rises. Mm. But secondly, you could write into it all sorts of things. I, I, I must say that I would be writing into a budget document that your employer-related expenses shall never exceed, say, 43%. And that then locks the government into achieving that sort of rate and they should not have an, expen- an employee expenses above 43%. You could also write It's a discipline for your other expenditure as well. Correct. And then you could write into the Fiscal Responsibility Act that in every budget they will deliver an outcomes-based budget paper. Now, they're things which I think, potentially with the support of the crossbench, we ought to be looking at requiring the government to do because in terms of the long-term benefit for the people of this state, I I just think this, this Treasurer, because of his particular focus... Is, is in many respects appears unconstrained by any of the normal requirements of how fiscal responsibility ought to be looked at. And, you know, the AAA credit rating is an objective mm-hmm. standard. The employee-related expenses could then be an objective standard. Mm-hmm. You know, there, are, there are other things that you could build into what uh, compromise, comprises, should I say, comprises fiscal responsibility that potentially ought to be built into the mm-hmm. Act to say that whatever whoever the treasurer is, whether it's our side or their side, these are the things that you should be doing to make sure that you bring your budget into line with what should be acceptable standards. Well, Damien, that's been, I think, a really helpful deep dive into the detail of the first Labor budget in, in 13 years in New South Wales. Thanks so much for sharing that and being my guest on Macquarie Street Matters. Alice, it's always a pleasure. Well, another big week in New South Wales politics. Can I can I just start with I think something that's front of mind for everyone? What's that? Well, well, that is, did the premier actually forget which state <laughs> he was leader of when he decided that he would back the Brisbane Broncos in the rugby league grand final rather than the Penrith Panthers? I know. How ridiculous was that? Was that a blo- was that a brain explosion? Like what was going on there? Total brain fart. Total brain fart. I mean, he said he likes the Brisbane story. How can you like the Brisbane story? There's nothing more powerful than the Penrith story, which is going for three-time NRL championship. Like, you know, this is unprecedented. The first time since the 1980s. A team from Western Sydney, which is electorally important for men's and labour. Well, I, I mean, he probably likes the Anastasia Palaszczuk story as well. Does that mean he's going to be Queensland Premier? I mean, this is nuts. It's so silly. It's so silly. But this is the time when you're supposed to be proud of the state you come from, not be like, oh, I like Brisbane. Anyway, another rookie error from the totally. Premier, it would seem, seem. Now, the other thing that broke this week on a, on a very much more serious note mm. was... The $150 million for palliative care that had been ripped out of the New South Wales budget. Now, we've previously spoken about how things within the budget have been disguised. So it seems to have taken a little while to realise that this $150 million for palliative care nurses, pain management, better end-of-life end of services these are for people who are dying of terminal illnesses it's it's pretty sad that's been ripped out of the budget and much of it has been redirected to guess what what voluntary assisted dying so uh. so not only have 
um, people with terminal illnesses being deprived of pain management and support, but it seems to have gone away from them on some sort of ideological grounds in terms of supporting voluntary assisted dying. I mean, isn't this an example where you should have funding for both? Like, there shouldn't be one or the other. And and I'm pretty sure when the voluntary assisted dying advocates were advocating for this change in the law, they were expressly saying that this isn't a substitute for palliative care. Exactly. And I think some of the people who are critical of the proposed voluntary assisted dying laws were saying that this will mean that resources are taken away from palliative care and rather than giving people a choice, which is what it should be about, they feel forced into voluntary assisted dying because that's where the funding's going and your quality of life under the palliative care system is now going to be reduced because that money is in this budget being taken and put into voluntary assisted dying. I mean, one of the things that uh, the coalition can be really proud of is the fact that through several different budgets, it wasn't just when the voluntary assisted dying laws came forward, the the coalition increased funding for palliative Mm. care consistently through the life of the government to make it at absolute record levels and made the availability of palliative care nurses throughout the state. And this is incredibly disappointing that, that that, that this decision could be made, which will impact the most vulnerable people in our community and also their families because mm. it's the families that have to in the trauma of seeing their loved ones not receiving the pain management and other services that they really deserve. Yeah, it's pretty sad. It's very sad. And, and then we had some other really sad events over the weekend. We, we had... We had some incidents with regard to people being given bail, which then has caused a great deal of controversy in the media. Incredibly sad case where a person was alleged to have engaged in domestic violence, a son against their mother. They were then given bail and then they're now alleged to have murdered their mother. And... Uh, I, I've I've got to say that, and look, I know hindsight is twenty twenty, mm. but it, it's quite troubling that people who are engaged in in domestic violence would be given bail, particularly in circumstances where they're on what we know about the case. And look, we weren't there as the magistrate, so it's only what we are aware of the case, but. I would have thought that a mental health assessment for that person uh, when they were under police control would have been a really desirable thing to have occurred. Yeah, it's pretty concerning. I mean, I think bail hasn't really been too much of a political issue here in New South Wales that I can recall in the last couple of years. But it's a massive issue at the moment up in Queensland. I was actually up there last week and chatting to some young people and youth crime up there is going ballistic. There were people telling me about how their primary concern is their safety. Like They think about locking their house all the time. They've had their cars stolen. Their parents' houses have been broken into. Their neighbours' house. Like, it's just crazy. And so it's going to be a key election issue up there in the next state elections. So I wonder if we might start seeing a similar thing emerge here. 
Well, certainly bail law has from time to time been quite controversial here in New South Wales as well. And of course, it's one of those difficult areas where the courts have to balance the presumption of innocence Mm. with regard to, I guess, harm to society in in a broader sense. But then we also had the tragic death of two people at music festivals who it would seem had taken illegal drugs and that also firstly gave rise to a controversy should there be pill testing or not and then also people who were arrested for drug supply I think one person with nearly 500 pills was also given conditional bail which which the police appear to have been unhappy about. Yeah it's pretty Pretty serious. And where was Chris Minns in all of this? Well, really interestingly, when the pill testing controversy came up, Chris Minns didn't do a press conference that day. He, he pushed out the health minister to talk about pill testing. Now, I would have thought that was a premier's issue and or an attorney general's issue, but neither came out to front the media. We had the health minister... And, of course, I think this is significant because Chris Minns knows that he has some extreme left-wing members of his cabinet who are in favour of not only pill testing but uh, legalising drugs uh, altogether. And so he doesn't want to come out and be caught by the media saying things which are going to provide problems for for the management of his team in government and 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 I think this is now sh- starting to sort of show the divisions within the New South Wales Labor government. Totally. I mean just I think it was two I was reading a quote from Rose Jackson 2 years ago she was saying criticizing the liberal government and saying we had to get on the nationwide trend of pill testing. Well, Rose, what do you think now of Chris Minter's position on pill testing? And I think what is what seems to be interesting is there's a bit of an ideological divide that is being revealed within the Labor government. Chris Minns, if I'm not wrong, voted against voluntary assisted dying, actually, and is and is now reallocating money from palliative care towards that. I wonder if that will present any moral qualms for him. And then now with the issue of pill testing, you have those in the extreme left of the Labor Party who are saying we need it, and then you have Chris Minns and other more conservative members of the Labor government that are resistant to it. So it's really hard to see what their path forward is going to be because government in the end like you actually have to have values and and that those values impact policies so when you have irreconcilably different views on key moral issues like drug legalization or drug reform pill testing bail voluntary assisted dying whether the police should be able to use sniffer dogs and music festivals and so on. Yeah, like that's really, really difficult. So I think Chris Minns will be in a very tough position. And, and the interesting thing is that we've heard nothing from him. Yeah. And I think it, it's, it's much easier in opposition to have an each way bet on things than when you're in government and you actually have to make decisions. And I think this is another example of these complex issues. Mm. And, and I mean... There are arguments both ways with pill testing and, and, and so on. It's I've always found it difficult to believe that because you test one pill, then you can extrapolate any confidence towards other pills because they're all illegally produced. They're mm. not in a batch. They're not 
they're, they're not all you know organized in such yeah. a way that you can you can say that that pill that you've tested is from the same batch as the other pills that you may have so it's problematic and then on top of that different people react to the pills in different ways yeah. and that's that's why the results are unpredictable the only predictable thing is that it's unpredictable and the only safe thing is not to take pills at all. <laughs> correct, correct. But, but, but there's this sort of narrative that somehow there is a, a silver bullet mm. and to the credit of the health minister, Ryan Park, he did come out and say there is no single silver bullet here, which, which, is, which mm. is correct. I think that's right and you have to be honest with people and particularly young people, they're generally the ones taking this stuff. Mm. Like, they have to know the risks of taking drugs. And just because there's pill testing doesn't mean it's all safe all of a sudden. Well, I think the concern is that it would give an imprimatur to, to, mm. to you know, to believe. That, that's certainly one of the concerns yeah. with pill testing. But, look, it's a complicated issue, not one for us to solve. But it's just interesting that on controversial issues, the Premier is going missing. Yeah. He's, he's very happy to talk about the rugby league grand final, but when you get more complicated issues than whether you support a New South Wales team or whether you support a <laughs> Queensland team, which one would have thought was a pretty easy choice, pretty easy binary choice, he, he's happy to, to go on radio and talk about that, but when you have these more difficult issues, suddenly he's, he's Mr Invisible. That's right, that's right. So, look, really, as always, a diverse and interesting week in New South Wales politics. And thanks for having a chat with me about it. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters and I look forward to you joining us again next week.